We want to return to the book of Psalms now, looking this afternoon at Psalm 36. Psalm 36. It has been many weeks, uh, several months, since we made an installment in this uh, ongoing study of Christ in the Psalms. And we come today to Psalm 36. And again, the purpose of this study is to see Christ in every psalm and hopefully to see him in ways that we have not seen him before and to see him more uh, in each part of the psalm than before it, it it is good that we see david here and rightly so it's good that we see ourselves here and rightly so but let us not fail to see our lord himself in these psalms so let's read psalm 36 to the chief musician a psalm of david the servant of the lord the transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flattereth himself in his own eyes until his iniquity be found to be hateful. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not evil. Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings." They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. May we see our Savior here. The very title of the psalm points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David. Here, David is called the servant of the Lord. And of course, the Lord Jesus prophetically in the book of Isaiah, in several places, is called the Lord's servant, the servant of Jehovah. And in this way, David is, of course, a type of Christ the servant of the Lord. We might outline this psalm in this way, 
we see in verses 1 through 4, the Lord Jesus, cognizant of human depravity, in verses 5 through 9, rejoicing in divine excellence, verses 10 and 11, making petition and intercession to the Father in heaven, and then in verse 12, anticipating final victory. <clears throat> so let's take these and, and look at them. Our Lord was conscious of human depravity. He was surrounded by it in this world. It is hard for us to imagine how it would be or what it would be like to be a, a sinless, perfect person living in this world of sin, with sin on every hand, literally on every hand, from every person. And to know in your soul that you are the only sinless one. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, this is a testimony to the, to the, the conscience of Christ. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. <clears throat> the transgression here is rebellion, and we considered that rebellion in some detail here this morning in Psalm 2. This was what we might say a was a foreign language to the sinless Son of God. It was the very opposite of everything that was true of Him and natural of Him. He was conscious of being in hostile territory, in a sinful environment among fallen man. And the sins that he witnessed all around him told him that there was no fear of God in the eyes of man. Reminds us of the statement at the end of John chapter 2 where it says that Jesus needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That's quite a parallel to Psalm 36 verse 1. None could deceive him. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We read in, in, in the four Gospels of instances where Jesus knew their thoughts and knew their hypocrisy. Uh, for example, when the Herodians came trying to catch him in his words and present a a difficulty that, that he couldn't answer and so on. He, he knew their hypocrisy. He knew their thoughts. Knew that there was no fear of God before their eyes. For verse 2, he flattereth himself in his own eyes. Man in sin is self-deceived. And he even imagined that he could deceive the Son of God on this earth. 
we see that so often. As in the case of those Herodians, for example, they they come and they come uh, so friendly and they're just laying a trap for Jesus. We see that kind of thing happening again and again. He flattereth himself in his own eyes. Those that Jesus was with on this earth, those among whom he lived, were self-deceived, hypocrites, self-righteous, flattering themselves in their own eyes until, he says, his iniquity be found to be hateful. And our Lord helped to reveal the self-righteousness. Think of the passage, the whole chapter there in Matthew 23 where Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, exposing their flattery of themselves, their self-righteousness, showing them their iniquity and showing how hateful and how sinful that it was. In, in the case of some, they were brought to repentance. In the case of others, they saw how sinful and hateful their sin was, and they couldn't bear the guilt. The clearest exhibit is Judas Iscariot. He flattered himself in his own eyes until his iniquity was found out and discovered and revealed and made open. And then it became hateful even in his own eyes. And he was so burdened with his guilt he couldn't live with himself. What a sad state. The words of his mouth, verse 3, are iniquity and deceit. And old Mr. Pierce in his commentary sees Judas Iscariot especially here in these verses. But no doubt other self-righteous and Pharisees are here, Sadducees even. The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. How often did they come to Jesus pretending to be friendly? We, we see that on that very uh, pivotal day in the week leading up to his crucifixion, when one group after another comes with their difficult questions for him, and they usually opened up the conversation with these words, Master or Rabbi, paying him at least some outward honor as a teacher and a master. Judas comes to him even in the garden of Gethsemane and calls him master. Evidently, Judas Iscariot thought that he had deceived Christ successfully all during the previous years of our Lord's public ministry. He thought that he had fooled Christ right up to that moment. 
and that he had concealed all of his covetousness, all of his theft, all of his duplicity, his secret meeting with the the priests and elders in order to betray Christ. What a fool he was. Yes, he was like the man in Psalm 2 who thinks that he can outsmart and outwit divine, infinite intelligence. Didn't Judas realize that he was dealing with God in the flesh? Did he think he could deceive him? Did he think he could win against him? That he could come out the winner in the in the whole matter? The words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. Notice here the emphasis on sins of omission. The Lord Jesus was not only conscious of the sins of others in a in an outward way of commission, what they were doing, but he was also conscious of the sins of omission on the part of those all around him, leaving off to be wise, leaving off to do good. Verse 4 continues, He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He abhorreth not Evil. <clears throat> Lost man loses sleep sometimes because his mind is so busy planning, scheming what his next sin will be. The times we see the Lord not sleeping at night, it was so that he might pray. But how often do sinners lose sleep devising evil and vanity or mischief in the night? Speaking of Judas, it it seems at least likely that he met with those Jewish leaders in a nighttime scene to scheme and to plot against Christ and to plan the betrayal. And certainly it was nighttime when it was carried out. For we read in John chapter 18 that, that Judas and the band of, of Jews and officers came with torches and lamps there to Gethsemane. <clears throat> Our Lord was conscious that his character was diametrically opposed to the character of fallen man. Our Lord always walked in a good way, but man in sin sets himself in a way that is not good. Our Lord always hated all evil. It did not find a a foothold in him. But man in sin loves evil rather than hates it. So... Our Lord did the Father's will publicly, openly. He didn't have to sneak around and hide like the enemies. He did His work in the day. 
nothing to be ashamed of. The, the, the character of Christ is set in perfect contrast with the character of lost man here in these opening verses. And again, our Lord is, was conscious <clears throat> of the, the evil that surrounded him. What a grief to his spirit it must have been. And without re-preaching another message, perhaps in, in the development of his human understanding, even from his youth, this was what enabled him to come to self-consciousness as the, the Son of God in human flesh, as he saw sins all around him that were repulsive to him and were not repulsive to others. And he recognized there's something different about me. I'm a different kind of person. As he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Well, we move to verses 5 through 9. Here is our Lord delighting in the Father's perfections. He mentions mercy in verse 5 and faithfulness in verse 5, righteousness or uprightness in verse 6, judgments, his, his carrying out of justice in verse 6, his preservation of man and beast, verse 6, his loving kindness, verse 7. These were matters in which the God-man on earth delighted and rejoiced. So different from all that he saw among man on earth in the way of sin, when he considered the Father in heaven, there was nothing but perfection, goodness, uprightness in every way, mercy, uh, faithfulness, and so on. In verse 5, we read, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and thy faithfulness reacheth unto the clouds. Mentioning the faithfulness of God along with the clouds reminds us possibly of the covenant with Noah in which the rainbow in the cloud was given as a sign of the covenant with Noah that was symbolic of God's gracious purpose toward mankind. His faithfulness reaches unto the clouds. Verse 6, thy righteousness is like the great mountains. God's uprightness, his moral rectitude is stable, unshakable, unmovable, like a mountain or like great mountains. And thy judgments are a great deep. There is a, a, an unfathomable depth to God's providence and his arrangement of things and his governing of things. O Lord, he says, thou preservest man and beast. And sometimes it's hard to tell one from the other. The enemies of Christ acted more like mad animals against him. And yet God preserves even his enemies for a while. These were matters 
that brought delight to the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he delighted in his people trusting in the Father. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God, verse 7. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. God's people trust in him, and they are safe with him. And the mention of the wings here reminds us of of a statement that he made there in in Matthew chapter 23, where he says to Israel, I would have gathered you uh, as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and so on. Well, those who do trust in him find that shelter, that protection, that safety as they trust in the Lord. Now, Mr. Pierce, that uh, to whom I'm very indebted here in this whole survey of the Psalms and seeing Christ in the Psalms, he sees other wings here. <clears throat> he says this, The allusion is to the cherubim, which covered the mercy seat with their wings. As the ark Mercy seat and cherubim were sacred memorials of Christ. As also on the day of atonement, the blood was to be sprinkled before the cherubim on that mercy seat. And hereby the atonement for sin was completed. So the expression of trusting under the shadow of God's wings is saying, in other words, such trusted in the person, obedience, and propitiatory sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. Well, think of that next time you read Psalm 36, and the children of men putting their trust under the shadow of thy wings. There's Christ figuratively and symbolically in in the the cherubim whose wings covered the mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant the place where god met with man the place where there was mediation in type and shadow <clears throat> well those who trust in the lord are not disappointed because he is trustworthy he is faithful Believers are never disappointed or put to shame because we trust in a solid rock and foundation. Well, verse 8 continues, They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. and Thou shalt make them drink of the river of thy pleasures. Again, looking at this through the eyes of Christ, He finds delight in believers being satisfied abundantly. It brings him joy to see us fully satisfied in God. Satiated with the ever-flowing river of thy pleasures. And oftentimes God's blessings are spoken of in terms of a river or a spring of water. Not a stagnant pool that can finally dry up, but as rivers of water, there's, there's a constant flow. 
There's an abundance. It never ends. It keeps coming and coming and coming. This is what is pictured here, or, or this is how the blessings of God are pictured. We drink of the river of God's pleasures. We, in terms of revelation, we drink of the river of life and the water of life freely. And yes, this brought delight to the Son of God. For with thee is the fountain of life, verse 9. In thy light shall we see light. Now here is our Lord identifying with his people as our Redeemer, as our representative, as our surety as the one who stands in our place and answers for us and who is in saving union with us, he includes himself in that last part of the verse. In thy light shall we see light. And life and light mentioned here in this verse remind us of the Opening verses in John chapter 1 that use these same terms. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and so forth. It's eternal life, and it's saving light or knowledge of God that he gives us. And again, this the thought of this brought joy to the soul of Christ. What delights him ought to delight us. May God help us. Well, we come in verses 10 and 11 to intercession and petition. And the intercession is in verse 10 where he's praying for you and me, child of God. Oh, continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee. And thy righteousness to the upright in heart. We depend on Christ to intercede for us. We need him praying for us, mediating, interceding. His work of suffering and accomplishing righteousness is a finished work, which he accomplished in his death and resurrection from the dead. But the application of that to us is ongoing as he ever lives to make intercession for us. Well, when Christ makes intercession for us, even this day, what is he saying? What does the Son in heaven say to the Father in heaven? Well, this verse, as much as any, gives us a clue. He prays for the love of the Father to continue. And in the margin there, it says to draw out at length, to keep extending forever. Oh, continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee. We are preserved, kept as an answer to the prayers of Christ for us. And this prayer is answered fully only in realms of glory when his 
Loving kindness is drawn out at length. And we are safe with him in heaven forever. Well, this is the petition or or the, the intercession on our behalf. Verse 11 is a petition on his own behalf. Let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked remove me. These scenes in scripture where Jesus rose up early to pray or he prayed all night unto God and so on. What was he praying? The prayers aren't recorded. We have one there in John chapter 17. Well, perhaps Psalm 3611 gives us a clue as to what Christ's petitions for himself included when he prayed to the Father in heaven as a man on earth in a state of humiliation. Let not the foot of pride come against me. Protect me. Preserve me. Let not the hand of the wicked remove me. And of course the Father did exactly that. He protected him. He preserved him. Until his hour was come. The hour of his suffering and death. The hour that came upon him there in Gethsemane. When he senses the load of sin being put upon him for which he would die, and he senses the abandonment of the Father in death on the cross. And then the feet of pride came against him. The hand of the wicked did remove him. Wicked hands took him, arrested him, bound him, Hauled him to trial, mocked him, beat him, finally slew him in the death of crucifixion. But not until his time had come. And we can at least see his prayers answered in in delaying that and in avoiding a premature event of crucifixion until the hour and the time had come. So our Lord, in his humiliation as a man on earth, was diminished to the point of praying for himself. It's an amazing thing to consider. He's reduced And we read in the book of Hebrews that he's able to sympathize with us. He knows our frame. He's a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it is to be reduced. And in need of the Father's help. Well, finally here in verse 12, the psalm ends on a glorious note. Jesus anticipates final victory. There are the workers of iniquity fallen. They are cast down and shall not be able to rise. Our Lord 
obeyed perfectly the will of the Father, knowing that he would be ultimately victorious, and even in the lowest point of humiliation, he was able to anticipate and to foresee the ultimate fall of his foes and his own ultimate triumph. The workers of iniquity would fall, not to rise again. See, our Lord, we might say in a sense, his death on the cross was a kind of fall, but he rose from that fall. He rose from the dead. But the fall of the workers of iniquity, when they fall in death, they will not be able to rise. They will not be victorious. Yes, they will be raised, but it will be to judgment and punishment at the last day. The workers of iniquity fall and are cast down. This seems to have been foreshadowed in events like John chapter 18, verse 6, where it says, when they came to arrest him, as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. There was just a little display of divine power there so that they would know that their arresting of him was not because of their power, it was because of his putting himself into their hands, his allowing this to happen. And then again on the resurrection morning, we read in Matthew 28 that for fear of him, after the angel came and rolled away the stone, for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. Again, that is just symbolizing of the, the fall never to rise again that our text speaks of here. When our Lord rose from the dead, he defeated death. Or as John Owen says, it was the death of death. The death of Christ meant the death of death. Death was left like a corpse on the battlefield because Christ conquered death in his resurrection. And as he labored on in his state of humiliation in his earthly ministry, it was the anticipation of this final glorious victory that encouraged him. It was the anticipation of the defeat of his enemies and the victory of his cause that enabled him to endure the cross and despise the shame. This joy that was set before him that Hebrews 12 speaks of strengthened him to disregard the shame of the cross and to endure it all. And thank the Lord that he did. As we sang a moment ago, hallelujah, what a Savior. What a Savior we see here in Psalm 36. As our representative, he secured victory over death. 
as our representative, as our substitute, he subdued all of the curse for us. And so in the words of this psalm, let us truly trust under the shadow of his wings, verse 7. Let us be abundantly satisfied with all that he is and all that he provides, verse 8. Let us know the Lord, as verse 10 speaks of. Continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee. Let us indeed know him and be upright in heart before him. As verse 10 says, these are matters here in this psalm that are our duty. May God help us to be faithful. Well, I hope these thoughts suggest more thoughts. And let us endeavor to see our Savior in this psalm, wherever he is in it. And seeing him here, let us renew our faith in him. Let us renew our appreciation, our gratitude, our love to him. And seeing him in this psalm, let us be moved to worship him and serve him and live for him and obey him and do so with a glad heart.